It is so good to see all of you here in person. I'm sorry I can't see those of you who are watching online. Hopefully uh, soon you'll be able to join us as well. I, I don't know. It's great to be able to say hello and welcome, but how do you do with uh, goodbyes? <laughs> how are you when you have to... Uh, Tell someone who you love, who you've enjoyed being with, a family member or good friends, goodbye. The night before, uh, Becky and I, we moved from California to Minnesota. We got together with a small group of of good friends. Um, Most of these uh, we had served with, had... uh, Ministered, they had ministered alongside of us there in that church in uh, California. We had uh, uh, been to the hospital when some of their children were, were born. Um, we had prayed together, we had played together, we had grown together. That night was not an easy night, I can tell you. Um, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I, right up front, I don't do goodbyes very well. <laughs> um, and so finally that night, we, we forced ourselves, Beck and I, we forced ourselves to say goodbye to these very good friends. We uh, gave each other hugs. It was legal then. Um, you could do that. Um, and then I remember Becky and I, we got into our car and we drove away silently. <laughs> Goodbyes are, are, are difficult, aren't they? Sometimes they're so difficult, they're filled with tears and, and pain, uh, wondering if we'll uh, see each other uh, again. That's why I find this description of Jesus' departure, his goodbye, <laughs> his departure to heaven, I, I find it so surprising. I want to invite you to turn with me to the last four verses of the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke Um, This past year, we finally come to the end. Um, You'll find out that we're going to just move right into his second volume, uh, the book of Acts, um, in the weeks uh, following. But right now, we we start with the last four verses of Luke. Luke 24, starting in verse 50. Look with with me what, what Luke tells us here. Then he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Um, Do you see that? Do you notice that little phrase here? Do you notice that Jesus, as he leaves the disciples, as they say goodbye to him, um, Luke tells us that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Do you find that surprising? I mean, why did the disciples, after Jesus has said goodbye to them and has ascended to heaven, why are they so joyful? Um, I mean, it seems easy for me, uh, to, uh, uh, for us, right, to be joyful when we talk about Christ's um, arrival, Right? I mean, Christ's arrival um, happened at Christmas, and we are (laughs) celebrating at Christmas. We're we're joyful at Christmas. We celebrate Christ's birth. I mean, we have a uh, we have a party when we think of God 
descending and becoming one of us, right? I mean, it fills us with joy. But it's more difficult, I think, for us to figure out why we are to praise him for ascending. Why are to praise him for his <laughs> leaving us, for his departure? I mean, what is it about Jesus' ascension that should give us reason to praise God like the disciples and to worship him? What do these disciples understand that, that we, we miss? Well, I want to tell you, I, I think there's two insights that this passage of Scripture gives us uh, as to the reason why the disciples had this uh, joy <laughs> when Christ left. The first one is because Jesus taught them, I think, what it meant uh, that they now live in um, kingdom time, the time after Easter, after his resurrection. And I want to credit David Hubbard, a former president of Fuller Seminary, with these thoughts <laughs> drawn out of this passage on the kingdom. Now, turn with me uh, to Luke's second uh, volume, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You understand that the, although the Gospel of John comes between these two books, Luke and Acts are really two volumes written by the same author. Um, volume 1 is the Gospel of Luke, and Volume 2 is the book of Acts. And um, we find here in Acts chapter 1 that it begins right where the Gospel of Luke leaves off. Um, with the time period between Christ's ascension and also, uh, or Christ's resurrection and then Christ's ascension. Um, in fact, look with me at, at what it tells us here, what happened during that in-between time, those 40 days. Um, starting in Luke, or in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, remember that's the, the friend that he's writing the book of, uh, Gospel of Luke to. He's also writing that to the Second volume here of Acts. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Do you catch that? 40 days. And Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. Can you imagine, I mean, just being there? I mean, here you are. You're one of Jesus' disciples, and you have been following him for uh, the past three years. Uh, and you've been soaking up all that you can from him. I mean, you've been watching, and you've been learning, and taking notes. <laughs> and over and over again, Jesus has taught on this topic of the kingdom of God. You remember some of his lessons, right? I mean, Jesus used parables to teach you about the nature of the kingdom. And he, he used the Beatitudes to inform you about the ethics of the kingdom. And he used the miracles to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. I mean, the kingdom of God was the curriculum that they had been taught for three years to so the disciples. I'm sure they, they thought, we know all of that stuff. And now Jesus, after his resurrection, comes back and teaches them some more about the kingdom. I got to tell you, that must have been one of the most intensive cram sessions in human history, don't you think? I would have loved to have sat in on that 
seminar, those 40 days, wouldn't you? Um, so what insights would we have gained if we had sat in on that seminar? Well, I think one lesson we would have learned about the, the kingdom time was the certainty of the kingdom. Can you imagine how the death of, of Christ must have sent these disciples reeling? I and mean, we've been talking about that in the past few weeks. Uh, uh, maybe even uh, doubting who he was at first and what he had taught them. And then came the Easter shout. He's not here. He is risen, the angel said. But even after that unbelievably great news, there were some of those disciples, remember, that continued doubting, right? So Jesus wants to show them that he is alive. And he doesn't do it just once. You notice this. I mean, if he had just shown up just one time um, in their midst, you know, they, they, he can't blame them. Maybe they would have been thinking, was that just an illusion? Was that just me dreaming? Was that just me imagining all of this that I saw him? But no, Jesus... Jesus wants to establish his resurrection beyond a reasonable doubt. So what does he do? (laughs) He keeps appearing, right, for 40 days. And in those appearances, he testifies to the certainty of his resurrection. I mean, he eats with them, and he uh, uh, meets with them, and he demonstrates to them um, that he was alive. And all of their anxiety and all of their, their worry about the kingdom, they disappear under the certainty of it. Dale Bruner, a theologian, <laughs> tells about his cat uh, named um, Clement of Alexandria. I mean, it's a name that only a theologian would name their cat, right? Um, And he says, when our cat goes outside, he lives in terror. He looks around as though it's a jungle, and he is terrified. But when he comes in the house, he lies on the floor, right between the kitchen and the dining room, where we walk most frequently, and falls asleep in total trust. My wife Kathy or I could squash Clement's head, but he trusts us. Our cat lives in complete, total confidence in his human companions. Every time I see Clement just lying there, I say to myself, that's what Jesus wants me to do, to trust him. (laughs) The kind of trust that Clement, (laughs) the cat, shows in his owners is the kind of trust the Lord Jesus Christ invites us to have in him. Why? Because the kingdom of God a sure bet, friends. It's a, it's a cinch. It's a certainty upon which we can stand, it, it, upon which we can put our full weight, upon which we can rest. I think there's a second lesson we would have learned if we had been in that seminar, that cram session. <laughs> We've learned about the power of the, the kingdom. I notice the question the disciples ask in verse 6. Acts 1, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? (laughs) Think about this. Even after all of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, the disciples still, they don't get it. Here they are, catch this, after the resurrection, still looking for the kingdom to be of a political nature. 
right? Are you going to wipe from our shores the polluting footprints of those Romans who arrived a century ago under Pompeii and have held us in check over all of this time? They're asking, hey, are are you going to Jesus set up um, the throne of David in Jerusalem and sit upon it yourself to the tune of uh, the great coronation trumpet? But look at Jesus' response, (laughs) verse 7. He says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, what Jesus says is, hey, guys, um, this curriculum that I'm teaching you is not about when the kingdom comes. Now, the Father's in charge of all of that stuff. Now, this curriculum I'm teaching you about the kingdom, it's about power. I want to talk to you about the power, um, not the times and, and the seasons. It's about witnessing that I want to speak to you about. It's about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with a power and a presence and a vitality beyond anything that you've ever known. See, before Easter, these disciples, do you remember? They had panicked while they were in that um, storm, in that boat, while Jesus was sleeping. And before Pentecost, I mean, you, you, you see it all the time in the, in the Gospels. They were confused and they were, they were lacking in faith. But listen, then the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and filled them and they were transformed And those who Jesus had once referred, oh, ye of little faith, (laughs) became martyrs, faithful unto death. See, Jesus, while he was walking among them, he, he had taught them about the Spirit. Remember that? He had said, listen, if your earthly parents respond kindly to your kids, when they ask you for something, isn't the Heavenly Father going to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? And yet, none of them seemed to have caught it. None of them had grasped, really, what, what, what Jesus had said until kingdom time. When the certainty of the kingdom confirmed the promise of the power of the kingdom, and they were willing to wait in Jerusalem until it happened, until the Spirit came. Third, I think there was another... significant lesson in this cram session that we would have learned if we had been there with those disciples. It was about the expansion of the kingdom. Now, you got to remember something here. Before Easter, right? How nervous and bothered these disciples were when they were taking that brief trek through Samaria. (laughs) But now, after the resurrection, Jesus tells them that his work and their witness is going to go worldwide. I mean, look with me again at verse 8. He says here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is saying, hey, starting here in Jerusalem where the trial was rigged and the witnesses were bribed, you start here and you fan out into the rest of Judea 
and then on into Samaria, and then beyond to the ends of the earth. And you notice something, the road starts here in Acts chapter 1, with the disciples gathered in Jerusalem, and if you turn to the end of the book of Acts, the last verse of Acts has Paul in Rome, (laughs) talking about the kingdom. See, the curriculum with which Acts began is, is the message in with, uh, with which it concludes. And the gospel went out, and it reached your pagan ancestors and mine also. <laughs> Praise God. The expansion of the kingdom has reached us all just as Jesus promised it would. See, Jesus, in this crash course, (laughs) during those 40 days, he brought these disciples to a new level of understanding about the kingdom. Previously, they had thought that the cross was an unmitigated disaster, but now they saw that God's kingdom was perfectly on track. (laughs) It was kingdom time. And God's kingdom is certain and it's powerful and it's, it's worldwide and everything will happen just as God has planned it. God is still in control. And that's why they were able to return to Jerusalem celebrating and worshiping and full of joy. I think there's another insight, a second one, that enabled those disciples to return to Jerusalem after Christ's ascension and rejoice and worship. Not only did they get new insights, I think, into the kingdom of God, but they also realized that when Jesus left them, that he was going to a place where they needed him the most. Look what happens after the disciples are given their new crash course on the kingdom. Look with me at verse 9. And when he had said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus ascends. Jesus had led them out of Jerusalem and up on that Mount of Olives overlooking the city, and then the disciples watched as Jesus was taken up into that cloud. Now understand here, this was atypical, right, during these 40 days. During his 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus would appear and then suddenly would vanish. He would be there one second, then he'd be gone the next. (laughs) But this time, they watched him go. This was a completely different experience. Nothing sudden about it. They watched as Jesus was taken up right before their very eyes. See, this marked the end of his resurrection appearances. Their training, in other words, was complete. And notice also where Jesus went. He went into that cloud. I got to tell you something here. Luke is not just giving us some weather report. (laughs) Um, Rather, what he's doing is he's telling us that Jesus was returning to the Father. You realize back in Exodus... As God's people were walking around the desert, the visible sign of God's presence was a cloud. Similarly, when Solomon built the temple, it was a cloud that filled that temple. 
a visible sign of God's presence. When Jesus was transfigured on that mountain, remember that? The disciples saw his glory. And what was it that came down on that mountain? It was a cloud. A cloud, the very presence of the Almighty God. So now Jesus is taken up, and as his disciples watch, what does he go into? (laughs) He goes into the cloud. The same Christ who had come from the Father was now returning to the Father. He has finished his work, and he is going back to the Father. And that's <laughs> what fills these disciples with such joy. It's not that Jesus had taken, had simply just disappeared into the sky, never to be seen again. But he was taken up into a cloud right into the very presence of God. He is with our Heavenly Father. Now, I want you to think about the significance of that. See, after Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden, there has not been a man or woman in the presence of God. And now Jesus, with his full humanity, is in heaven. I mean, angels had seen Adam, right? Driven out from the presence of God. And now for the first time, a man walks right into the very presence of God. Adam was expelled from God's presence, and as a result, all of his children were alienated from God. Christ is welcomed into the Father's presence, and as a result, all of his children are welcomed by the Father as well. No wonder the disciples went back to Jerusalem with such joy. And when Christ ascended into heaven, don't you think the disciples knew that he was exactly where they needed him to be? I mean, isn't it far more important that Christ should represent us in heaven before the Father than he should be physically present with us here on earth? Just for a moment, imagine that you're in prison um, and you have the best lawyer possible. I mean, an excellent lawyer. Um, In fact, you've really, as you've spent time with this lawyer, you've gotten to know her very well. Um, and you love to have her come by your cell and um, talk to you. You love having her drop by as often as she can. She encourages you. She's a a person of great compassion. You find her presence very comforting, and and you say, ah, all that's great, right? But listen, what you need the most from your attorney is is not comfort necessarily in that cell. But you need most, you need an effective advocate in the courtroom, right? That's the same true for us. Our greatest need is not comfort on this earth, although that's wonderful. Our greatest need is a defense in heaven. (laughs) I need a representative who will speak to the Father on my behalf, an advocate to plead my case. And when Christ ascended into heaven, he went to that place where, he, where we need him the most. In fact, uh, Apostle John explains it. He says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But there's more, I got to tell you. When Jesus came to earth, he was painfully limited You recognize that as a baby, he was totally dependent upon those two peasant parents, Joseph and Mary, right? 
And just like all of us, he could not be in one place. Uh, he could only be in one place at any given time. I mean, he, he couldn't be in Capernaum and, and also in Jerusalem at the same time. But with Christ's ascension, see, there, there was a shift that took place. He moved into a, a new dimension, um, from a space-time dimension to a dimension beyond space and time. And he is now available anytime, anywhere. I mean, there's nowhere you can go where Christ's presence and his power and his immediacy are not available. There's no time when you will call on his name and he will not answer. You know, we're all very familiar with cell phones, right? And, and cell phone companies like to brag about how good their coverage is. Mostly the time I, I find that they uh, uh, are exaggerating. Uh, but they love to brag about their, their, their coverage. Now listen, when Jesus was on earth, he had a tightly defined um, geographical mission. In fact, he, he said he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that? And his focus was on that one tiny Roman province of uh, Judea. And if you were in Italy... <laughs> Um, the, too bad. Uh, Jesus' coverage uh, was limited then. I mean, even Verizon had him beat. But now, catch this, through, the, through his ascension, Jesus has risen up into heaven and his glory and power extends over the whole world through his spirit. So you can be in Minneapolis and you can call on the name of Jesus. You can be in Malaysia and you can call on his power. Wherever you are, um, in the emergency room, uh, on an airplane, um, or laid up at night with a sick child, Jesus is there for you. With his ascension, all the restrictions have been removed and he has become our ever-present Christ. Verizon doesn't stand a chance anymore. <laughs> Writer Kenneth Wilson tells of growing up in Pittsburgh. He writes this, that house in which we lived on the side of one of Pittsburgh's hills was three stories high in the front and four in the back. The bottom layer was the cellar, and the top was what we called the third floor, really a finished attic the ceiling of which was cut into shadow geometric shapes by dormer windows. Up there were two bedrooms, a hallway, and a mysterious storage room for trunks that always smell of mothballs and history. Our family slept there because the second floor was usually rented out for a tenant to help pay for the rent. Kenneth remembers that being the youngest, he had to go to bed first. He says it felt like a long way up the steps, especially because... They didn't have electricity above the four, uh, second floor, and a gas light had to be turned on and then turned off once the boy was settled. That bed in that room on the third floor seemed to be at the end of the earth, remote from human habitation, close to unexplained noises and dark secrets, he says. Sometimes my father would read me a story, but inevitably that time would come when he would turn out the light and shut the door, and I'd hear his steps on the stairs growing fainter and fainter. Then all would be quiet, except for the rattling windows in my cowering imagination. Once I remember my father said, would you rather I leave the light on or, and go downstairs? 
or turn the light out and stay with you for a while. I always chose presence with darkness over absence with light. Isn't that not what we really want most? The assurance that someone is there? (laughs) With Jesus' ascension, friends, I can tell you, Jesus is always with us through his spirit. No wonder the disciples returned to Jerusalem full of joy. Christ's departure doesn't mean that he has abandoned us. It means he's in control. It means that he is with us. It means that it's kingdom time and the kingdom of God is present and at work in us and and, and through us. It means that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. So might we worship him? Might we, each one of us, be full of joy? Let's pray. Father God, (laughs) this morning we come. Our hearts are full. We are truly joyful and celebrate your ascension. With your triumphal entry into heaven, you have won the victory over sin and death and Satan. You are seated at the right hand of God the Father, and you are our advocate before him. You plead our case. Oh, Lord, how we need that. How amazing, how wonderful. As your disciples, we come this morning with joy, full of joy, worshiping you. Lord, this past week, We have experienced a whole series of emotions here in the Twin Cities. There's been anger, there's been confusion, numbness. We hurt over the most recent series of tragic events. We have watched as people have been disregarded and distressed and killed. Our hearts grieve with our black and brown brothers and sisters over another life that's lost. And we also pray for our police and those given the responsibility to protect. Would you guide and direct them? Father, we come to you. We come to you who are compassionate and you who are holy and righteous. And with your prophet Amos, we cry out, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-fading stream. Lord, we need you. Our world needs you. And Father, might we as your church, as your people, a royal priesthood, might we stand in the gap, might we be salt and light in our neighborhood, in our community. Lord, might we be recognized because we are yours. And we pray, as you taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center as it is in heaven. We pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.